Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. We finished studying the life and martyrdom of Stephen in our last lesson and ended that podcast by introducing another one of the first seven deacons who was powerfully used by God. The remainder of Acts chapter 8 is about Philip and the revival that the Lord used him in. Verse 5 introduces Philip into the narrative stating, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. Before we go any further, we should determine who Philip is. We can begin by saying that he isn't the Apostle Philip, because we are told in verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. If this Philip had been an apostle, then this verse would have been worded very differently. We also know that he was one of the first seven deacons that was given the responsibility of taking care of the widows that had come into the growing church. The Philip we are looking at is also called the Evangelist in Acts chapter 21, verses 8-9. through 9. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed in the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. This account of Paul visiting Philip is said to be around 20 years after the account we are looking at. Then after this, we don't hear of him again. When we get deeper into this account of revival and what follows, we will see why this Philip is called the Evangelist. With the information that we have, it's clear that the Philip who was used in the revival in Acts chapter 8 was one of the first seven deacons. He ended up ministering in Samaria because of the great persecution that broke out after the martyrdom of Stephen. Though there was great animosity between the Jews and Samaritans, Samaria was not as dangerous a place to minister as it was in Jerusalem. And since revival broke out in Samaria, we see that they were far more open to the gospel and the move of the Holy Spirit than was Israel and the people in Jerusalem. Verse 6 is more important than what we might think at first. It reads, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. This verse is clearly portraying the purpose and value of signs and wonders. The purpose, need, and value of miracles is still relevant today. Until we see the need for them, we won't seek the Lord to release them through His people or believe that it is His will to do so right now. Those who make the unbiblical claim that the days of miracles is over forfeit the power of the Holy Spirit and all the benefits that come through Him. That's very sad. Just look at this verse and read what opened the people up to the gospel so that revival broke out. It was signs and wonders. Miracles don't save people. They never have and they never will. Only Jesus saves. But miracles point people to the Savior so that they can be saved. If Holy Spirit power is withheld from the church due to unbelief or the doctrinal baggage that keeps people from believing what the Word teaches on the matter, then we will not see this powerful tool working in the church. This verse states a fact about one of the many benefits that come out of miracles. They all paid close attention to what he said. People may not listen to her words, but it's hard to deny an obvious miracle. Imagine that there's this nondescript house in a neighborhood that people drive by all the time but never really see. If that house catches on fire, all of a sudden everybody in the neighborhood sees it. Of course, a house on fire isn't a miracle, but the illustration fits the purpose to show how miracles can open people up to see Jesus when otherwise they would be totally blind to him. 
I came across a wonderful little book that was written by Jim Montgomery. It's called New Testament Fire in the Philippines. Montgomery was a Baptist missionary who researched the explosive growth of Pentecostal missions in the Philippines. His Baptist denomination sent him to determine why Pentecostal missions were experiencing such explosive growth while non-Pentecostal missions weren't. He decided to look at only one Pentecostal denomination and he picked the smallest one, which was the Foursquare Church. Montgomery wrote a very honest account of what he learned from his research, even though it went contrary to his Baptist theology. He made the startling discovery that it took 36 non-Pentecostal missionaries to do what one Pentecostal missionary was accomplishing. That's astounding. Why did he say this? Because facts don't lie, and they don't have an agenda or doctrine to push. They are just facts. What was foundations of the explosive growth? Signs and wonders. A Pentecostal missionary pastor or layperson would go into a jungle village, find the sickest person, then pray for his or her healing. And when that person was healed, the whole village would get saved. The people knew about supernatural power that comes from hell. But when God's infinite power is revealed, they knew that only the one true God could do such miracles. The amount of women that were going out and planting churches as a result of the miraculous was astounding. Sometimes they were planning up to 10 churches a year. Those who refuse to believe that God's supernatural power is still at work today will deny the reality of the miraculous, while some will foolishly attribute it to the devil. Yet that doesn't change the fact of who God is and what He does. The Lord will show Himself mighty to whosoever believes, no matter what the naysayers scream and shout or publish on YouTube. Because some people claim that the age of miracles is over doesn't mean that God agrees with them. He still does miracles. He's still God. And because some people abuse the gifts doesn't mean that God stops doing miracles. He still does miracles, and He's looking for those who will be faithful. If you reject the miraculous, then you are not only hurting yourself, but all those who could benefit if you would only believe. Those who believe in miracles and in the baptism of the Holy Spirit are often demonized by those who refuse to believe, yet God is true and faithful to His promises no matter what people say or do. Try to imagine how the Sanhedrin Council and the religious Jews responded to revival breaking out in Samaria through Philip. They were probably raging mad and slandering Philip in every way they could. They certainly would have denounced it all as the work of the devil and warned everyone to stay far away from it. They would have stoned Philip if they could have got their hands on him, but they didn't have any authority within the borders of Samaria. No matter how much they vomited out their hate and contempt for Jesus and the miraculous power that was working through the Spirit-filled church, they couldn't stop what the Spirit was doing. We have our modern-day Pharisees today who are all over YouTube and all other social media outlets slamming anything supernatural as being of the devil. Yet God doesn't listen to their deceptive teaching and unbelief, for He keeps on performing the miraculous through those who choose to believe. This is one of the greatest needs of our time. Saints who will believe the promises of God, who will stand upon the Word of God and believe what it teaches from cover to cover. Saints who refuse to hide behind unbelief, fear, and pet doctrines and will step out in faith that the Lord will use them will see His glory. 
In verse 7, the power of the Holy Spirit was doing things that a vast portion of the church today would reject and call a work of the devil. The verse reads, With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. I guarantee you that the meetings Philip was leading weren't dead or stoic, but exciting, emotional, and alive with the Holy Ghost. God was manifesting himself in a tangible way through his manifest presence and with signs and wonders. Let's get real here. If you are blind and all of a sudden your eyesight has been restored to you, how would you act? Come on, be honest, and throw off your religious baggage. You would be extremely excited and would probably be screaming and shouting and dancing and maybe weeping uncontrollably at the same time. To be emotionless would not be an option. It would actually be an insult to the God who just healed you. The right response would be excitement, joy, amazement, and a whole lot more. The distortion of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40 has produced a lot of dead religion. He wrote, Let all things be done decently and in order. Cemeteries are decent and in order. Nobody gets out of line or does anything that's disturbing or says anything that would cause a ruckus. They're all dead. That sounds like a large portion of the American church today. This is why a lot of churches have gone to an entertainment format since people don't want to worship God, but they don't mind a good concert and a little talk afterwards. What's decent in order in a hurricane? How about when nations are under attack and bombs are dropping on cities? Decent and in order at a ball game means people are screaming and shouting in support of their team. Then in the end, it's all worthless and vanity and vexation of spirit. But if that's done in the church towards the living God, then it's thought fanatical, extreme, or even of the devil. What utter and absolute hypocrisy. What's decent and in order in authentic revival? Is it a bunch of people sitting or standing like marble statues? Is that acceptable to God? How about loud weeping and see people run to an altar to get right with God because they had the revelation that their sin is evil and they are going to hell? What is decent and in order when God shows up in the wonder of his presence like we read about in Isaiah chapter 6? And what does God deserve for the reward of his suffering? Dead, stoic religion? Sing-alongs that will bore you to death? cutesy little talks or motivational speeches that change nobody? There are an abundance of real-life stories of people who go to such churches and are in the practice of sin and still think they are right with God. Whole portions of the church are going to hell because cowardly pastors won't warn the people about the wages of sin and the only way to get to heaven. Verse 7 told us that with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many. But how many churches would have the Holy Spirit tangibly present to cause a demon-possessed person to manifest or to flee out of the church? If a demon-possessed person was shrieking while the demon was coming out of the person, the ushers would quickly rush him out of the church and tell him never to come back. Are dead churches decent and in order? I give an emphatic no to that. They aren't decent and in order. Dead churches are filled with dead, stinking corpses, and that's not decent. Jesus died to give us life, real life, abundant life. This life should be manifested at every church service where it's decent in order to worship God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and all of your voice and being. 
Half-hearted, lukewarm worship is never decent and in order. It's out of God's order. And if you don't understand this, then read the book of Revelation and then follow that with Psalms. The worship in both books is vibrant, alive, powerful, and exciting, and God is pleased with it. Worship that is decent in order is worship that comes from people who passionately love Jesus and aren't afraid to demonstrate that. When people passionately love Jesus, they are going to express that love in audible worship where the worshiper is fully engaged in worship. Should we offer him anything less than that? Is he not a great king, the greatest king that deserves the reward of his suffering, which is our passionate pursuit of him that comes out of a holy, surrendered life? I went through all this to say that most American churches wouldn't tolerate Philip's ministry. They wouldn't invite him to their church and would quickly judge him as a heretic or false prophet. A vast number of churches are so far from the biblical faith that if authentic revival came to them, they would immediately shut it down. Verse 7 tells us that many demon-possessed people were set free and that many paralytics and cripples were healed. This is New Testament Christianity. This is the faith we need to return to, signs and wonders Christianity that changes the world in which we live, a faith that's alive, beautiful, and powerful. This is the faith that captures the attention of the world and draws hurting, dying people to Jesus. What was the result of this move of the Holy Spirit in Samaria? Verse 8 gives us the answer. So there was great joy in the city. Wow, that's awesome. Why was there great joy in the city? Because signs and wonders Christianity had come to the Samaritans, and they were in large numbers embracing what God was doing. The miracles opened the people up to the message, and the message pointed them to Christ. And then the greatest of all miracles took place, which is the salvation of people's souls. Great joy wasn't happening because they were watching a football game. The Holy Spirit had come in power and glory and everything else in life paled in comparison. I have preached in dead churches and it's like plowing cement. It's extremely hard work. I have also preached at truly spirit-filled churches and sensed the power of the Holy Spirit being poured out and lives being changed as a result. Great joy can't be found in anything the world offers since the world is spiritually and morally bankrupt. Whenever the church copies the world, they can only give a Christianized version of the world's bankruptcy. This always grieves the Holy Spirit. Why give people the world when they're already immersed in its depravity? But if we will give them Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit— then they will see a God of power who is more than able to save, heal, and deliver them. Great joy comes through God's salvation, and the greater the number of authentic salvations, the greater the joy that will be in the church. Moving on to verses 9 and 10, we come to a particular event in the Samaritan revival. The verses read, Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. How long the revival in Samaria went on, we aren't told, because that's not the important point. The important point is that the Holy Spirit came with power and lives were radically transformed. 
Prior to the revival breaking out, there was a man named Simon who was a sorcerer or magi, and he used his dark arts to amaze the people. This magic is demonic and is strictly forbidden in Scripture. In his pride, Simon the sorcerer proclaimed that he was someone great, and people of all walks of life thought this to be true. They claimed that he was the divine power known as the Great One, which possibly means that he claimed to be the incarnation of some god. That Simon was operating a demonic power is evident from the verse. Many assert that he awed the people with illusions and generic predictions of the future. There may be some truth to this, but we mustn't minimize the reality that demonic power works through some people. Simon's power was real and demonic. Though we aren't told how that power was manifested, it was real, and the people revered him for it. We see this in verse 11. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. When you look at the account of the miracles the Lord performed through Moses, we find that Pharaoh's magicians copied the first few. There was finally a point where they could no longer counterfeit the power of God that was proven greater than what the pagan sources could produce. This is the same thing here. Simon the sorcerer saw the miracles the Lord was performing through Philip, and he knew this was the power of God because it was beyond anything he could do through his magic. The miracles Philip was doing opened up Simon to the gospel because all of a sudden the magician was being eclipsed by the real power of God. This humbled the man enough to acknowledge that this was the true power of God, and he opened himself up to the gospel. The revival was spreading, and the people saw what Philip was doing and preaching was greater than anything the sorcerer had ever said or done. In verse 12, we are told, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. This is a phenomenal expression of what the power of God manifested through signs and wonders can do. Samaritans were putting their faith in the Jewish Messiah. And given the intense prejudice between Jews and Samaritans, this is nothing short of a miracle. Not just that. They were baptized as a testimony that they had given their lives to Christ. They were embracing the ritual that John the Baptist had made popular, who happened to be a Jewish prophet. All this demonstrates just how powerful signs and wonders are in advancing the cause of Christ in this world. This isn't about seeking after signs and wonders, but doing exactly what Jesus told us to do in Mark chapter 16, verse 17, and these signs will follow those who believe. When we believe Jesus, signs and wonders should follow us. When signs and wonders aren't following the church, it's because the people aren't believing the promises of God. I was thinking on this verse in Mark the other day because a brother in Christ mentioned it in a conversation. The best evidence is that Mark's gospel actually ends at verse 8, and that verses 9 through 20 are a later insertion into the text. All of the best ancient manuscripts don't contain these verses, and many early church fathers didn't even mention them, such as Jerome and Eusebius. Now add to this that the writing style of those verses are clearly not that of Mark, and you have internal proof that this portion of Scripture is very suspect. If the words of Jesus as recorded at the end of Mark aren't original, then this would only support what the early church believed, that these signs will follow those who believe. 
This would only prove that miracles didn't end with the death of the apostles. But this was still going on whenever this portion of Mark was inserted into the text. This is a very interesting thought. The point that men and women were being baptized is important because many times it's the women that come to Christ first, followed by a few men. I have ministered in various places around the country where a few men attended Sunday morning service, but wouldn't attend any of the following services because that's for women and not for men. Here's another reason why we need the power of signs and wonders, and genuine revival is one expression of signs and wonders. Genuine revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that brings with it the intense conviction of sin and the radical conversion of sinners. It's the greatest form of evangelism that the church could ever do. I'm not talking about the cultural idea of revival meetings where a local church advertises that they are going to have revival services with such and such a preacher. You can sooner organize a tornado than you can a genuine revival. Let me share with you the powerful account of revival that broke out in 1859 in Northern Ireland in the county of Ulster, so it became known as the Ulster Revival. The signs and wonders of this move of the Spirit brought in the proud and stubborn men, as you will soon see. Reverend William McGill from Dundrod gives his first-hand account, which begins after his going to Belfast, where he saw real revival there. He wrote, I had leaned over the prostrate bodies of men and women laboring under strong conviction of sin. I had heard, for the first time in my life, the sighs and groans of breaking hearts and witnessed with a feeling of wonder and awe the mental agony and terrible struggle of souls wrestling with principalities and powers of darkness. When the battle was won, I heard with almost equal wonder the shout of victory. I came home breathing earnest prayers that the Lord would come over the mountains and visit my people. I was not disappointed. He went on to write, The following morning a man approached the parsonage. I was soon on my way to his house. One of his daughters had fallen ill after coming home from a prayer meeting. She was up all night and raised the whole family to pray for her. He feared she was going wrong in the mind, and she was getting worse. Pastor McGill said that he heard the young woman's loud and earnest prayers even before reaching her house. When the pastor entered the house, he saw the mother and two sisters on their knees in tears, while the stricken one, as they called those under the intense conviction of the Holy Spirit, was a picture of woe and despair. He wrote that the young woman's face was streaming with tears, and she was in mortal agony praying words of fire. Oh, Lord Jesus, save my guilty soul. Come and give relief to my guilty soul. When she finally saw her pastor, she said, Oh, there is my minister. I knew I would have no peace till he came. Come, pray for my guilty soul. Pastor McGill knelt beside her and prayed while she prayed as well. He wrote, I never heard such asking, seeking, striving to enter the kingdom of God. When the struggle was over, she began a song of triumph. During the singing, another sister fell to the ground, and while rolling on the floor, tearing her hair, wringing her hands, she exclaimed in heartrending tones, Oh, is there no pardon for me? Am I too great a sinner to be forgiven? Oh God, for Christ's sake, save me. Then her newly saved sister prayed over her until she came to Christ. 
The story of the sisters' conversion spread like wildfire, and people began running to the house to see what God was doing. Those two newly saved sisters began to share what God had done, and that night a prayer meeting was held outside of the house in the open field. The multitude that arrived began to heave to and fro like a ship in a storm, like drunken men in the streets. They staggered and fell with a shout or a deep sigh. Tears were shed and groans were heard as if from dying men. Husbands and wives were locked in each other's arms, weeping and praying together. Those who came to mock were gripped with fear and trembling, and some fled from the terror of the scene. The revival rapidly spread, and after an evening sermon, people left the church laboring under deep conviction. As they left, the graveyard immediately began to fill with groups of people praying around the prostrated bodies of men and women. Pastor McGill wrote, Up to this evening, the work had gone on chiefly among the women. Soon, strong men were writhing in agony or stretched out still and calm, but with clasped hands and heaving heart. Then a woman shouted triumphantly, The men are coming now! The men are coming now! The move of the Holy Spirit brought such intense conviction that Reverend McGill stated that there were no backsliders from this revival in Dundrod. This is what signs and wonders Christianity produces. And this is what Philip was experiencing in the unique way it was happening in Samaria. This is what we desperately need today. And this is the only way men and women like Simon the sorcerer will be converted. We are told in verse 31, Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Simon, the former sorcerer, was seeing God move in a way that he had never seen or experienced, and it opened him up to the gospel through which he had been led to salvation. The fact that the demonic power Simon was operating through couldn't satisfy his soul thirst is seen in his believing Jesus as his Savior and then being baptized as a testimony to his salvation. It appears that Simon was so taken with what the Lord was doing in Samaria that he followed Philip everywhere. Then verse 14, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. If only a couple of people had been saved, the apostles wouldn't have sent Peter and John to Samaria. The move of the Spirit was so large that the apostles felt that Philip needed help to minister to the people and to navigate the waters of revival in Samaria. Though the number of people saved in this revival isn't recorded, we are told that Samaria accepted the word of God. This doesn't mean that everyone was saved, but that so many people were saved that it literally transformed the city. There's a similar thing said about Scotland during the Great Reformation. It was said that in other parts of England and Europe, people were saved in small numbers from village to village. But in Scotland, they were saved by the village and by the city. In the South Seas, there was a memorial tablet that was built into a church that seats a thousand people. And the tablet is dedicated to John Getty. It reads, When John Getty landed here in 1848, there were no Christians here. When he left in 1872... There were no heathen. We need Christians like Philip and John Getty, whom the Lord can use to turn the world upside down. There's a simple yet interesting point in this verse that's just another solid piece of biblical evidence that the entire structure that is built a denomination based upon popes is totally unscriptural. 
we are told that the apostles sent Peter and John. This teaches us that Peter wasn't the head of the church or the first pope, as some erroneously claim. It's a historical fact that Peter was never the head of the church in Jerusalem because that position fell upon James, who was eventually killed by Herod. Peter and John were being good servants. They were told to help Philip minister in Samaria, and they obeyed the command of the other apostles and went. We then read in Acts chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here's another portion of Scripture that clearly teaches that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace. The first account is what happened on the day of Pentecost, as we studied in the opening chapter of the book of Acts. It's extremely important that we let Scripture speak for itself and not force it to say what we want it to say to support our doctrinal persuasion. The Word plainly states that the people saved under Philip's preaching had been baptized in water as an outward expression of their faith in Christ, but hadn't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It was the common practice of the early church leaders to want verifiable evidence in the converse before they baptized them in water. Though they had been saved and baptized in water, they hadn't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We aren't told why people weren't baptized in the Holy Spirit under the supernatural ministry of Philip, but this may be due to the spiritual gifts the Lord had given Philip. In this case, Philip was operating within the God-given gifting that the Lord had given him, and the Lord didn't want him to minister outside of them so he wouldn't grow spiritually proud. Peter and John came and was operating in the gifts the Lord had given them which included praying for people to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Verse 17 states, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The way this is worded, we learn that the Lord didn't baptize in the Holy Spirit some people, but everyone on whom Peter and John laid their hands. Most of the time, people are baptized in the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. Part of it has to do with people operating in their calling and the other has to do with people wanting the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and having faith enough to believe for it. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Lord is waiting for us to want the Holy Spirit enough that we will ask, seek, and knock until He gives us the Spirit baptism that He promised us. How great is your desire for this gift? Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek him in spirit and in truth. And thirst no more, so come wash in the river, come drink your fill, let healing waters bear away your guilt, lay down your burdens on a beautiful shore.
歌。